You're listening to the Grace Point Northwest podcast. We hope that you will be encouraged and built up in your relationship with Jesus as you hear the preaching and teaching of God's Word. If Grace Point Northwest is not your home church, it is our heart that this podcast will be supplemental and not a substitute to you belonging to a local church in your community. If we can help you get connected to a church in your community, please let us know. And we hope you enjoy this message from our Sunday gathering. Good morning, Grace Point Church Northwest. My name is Travis, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church. If this is your first time joining us this morning, I would just like to take a moment to thank you for tuning in. We want you to know that Grace Point Church Northwest is a church where anyone can come as they are, no matter where they are on their spiritual journey, to discover and strengthen a relationship with Jesus. And we are so glad you are tuning in this morning. Now, if you got a Bible, go ahead and open up to Philippians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like to follow along, feel free to download the YouVersion app. All you have to do is just type in Grace Point Church Northwest in the events tab there, and you can follow along. I'd like to invite you to pray with me right now, and then we will dive into our text. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we thank you so much for your love and your grace that you've just given us through your son, Jesus. And I just pray for each and every person that is... Uh, just watching right now. God, I don't know who's watching, but I know you do. And so I just pray that you just uh, cause your word to rest on their hearts as you see fit. Some of us need to be encouraged. Some of us need to be convicted. And some of us need to be given the gift of faith for the very first time. And so, Father, I just ask that you work in each and every heart to bring you glory, them joy, but also to defeat the enemy in, in the city. And I just thank you, God, uh, just for the love and the grace that you've just given us through Jesus. And I just pray that right now he may be lifted up. We pray also in his name. Amen. Now, this morning we're going to continue in our teaching series through the book of Philippians called Unshakable Joy. And this morning we're going to see that joy is found in thinking like Jesus. This past week I was thinking about how much our thoughts tend to impact both what we do and what we say. And this became very real for me several years ago when I was serving at another church here in the city. I was serving as a children's pastor. I ended up serving as a children's pastor for about five years. And I was in my office and I was studying Luke chapter 4 and trying to develop a, a study for the elementary kids on spiritual warfare. In Luke chapter 4, we see that Satan and Jesus go out in the wilderness and they do battle where Satan tempts Jesus over and over and over again, trying to get him to dis disobey and disbelieve in God. Now, as I was sitting there working on this message, I realized I needed to ask my coworker a question. In the office next to me uh, was my coworker, Debbie. Now, Debbie was a very, very sweet lady. She was kind, she was soft-spoken, and she served as our preschool director. And as I was focusing on this lesson, I got up from my desk, I walked out into the hallway, I knocked on her door, and she motioned for me to open that door. And when I opened that door, I looked at her and I said, Hey, Satan, I need to ask you a question. Now, why did I do that? What was I thinking about? I was thinking about Satan. And what I didn't realize until I saw her mouth dropped and in just a few seconds that I called the nicest lady in the entire uh, you know, staff, Satan. Here's what you've got to understand. What we say oftentimes is a reflection of what we think. And what we do is often a reflection of what thoughts are going through our mind. And the question you gotta ask yourself is this, what monopolizes your thought life? And does it bring about the lasting joy you long for? The Apostle Paul is going to tell us today that true joy is in thinking like Christ. And that's why he says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 this, Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What does Paul say here? You and I as followers of Jesus are to what? We're have the same, we are to have the same mindset as Jesus himself. 
Last week, you heard me allude to the fact that relationships can change us. And I learned this past week, very vividly, that is absolutely true. My family, we were sitting around the table in our kitchen and we were playing this game called Apples to Apples. Some of you might have seen this game. Basically, in the middle, you have a bunch of green cards that you turn over that reveal a word like this word is excellent. And around the table, each player has a different, has about six or seven red cards with different words on them. Now, the way you play this game is that the person who is it takes one of these cards, flips it on the table. With that, each and every person around the table tries to choose one of their cards that they think fits this word, but also they're trying to choose a card that they think you will choose. So if you were playing this game with me and the word was excellent and you had these cards right here like a swim party, music, and soccer, which one do you think you would play? Well, if you know me really well, you're probably going to play soccer because I think soccer is excellent. And when, and now, if I choose your card, guess what you get? You get this green one. And the person with the most green cards at the end of the game wins. As we were playing this game, it was obvious who was winning. My wife and I were. We were annihilating our kids. And if you must know who won the game, it was my wife, Jess. Why is that? It's because she's very competitive? Yes, she is, but that's not necessarily the reason why. As the game was being played, Jess said something that reveals why she won this game. She basically chose most of the cards that I played. And the reason she chose those cards is because she said this, I know how you think. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, you and I, we know how Jesus thinks. However, Paul isn't just talking to us as individuals, but rather what Paul is doing is he's talking to us as a community of faith, as a faith family, as a church. We know this because of the words he uses, the plurals of among and yourselves and yours. It's almost as if Paul is looking at the church and saying, you guys know how Jesus thinks. You have his mind. Therefore, now pursue living like him in your attitude and your actions with one another. But how do we know the mind of Jesus? Well, how do you think my wife won that game? How did she know to pick my cards? Well, I will tell you this, she spends a lot of time with me, especially lately as we're in quarantine. And the way you and I know the mind of Christ is through the Holy Spirit, but we also know the mind of Christ through the Bible, the Word of God. And when it comes to reading the Bible, friends, you've got to hear me. We don't approach the Bible just simply seeking information. But rather, we approach the Bible longing for transformation, praying to God to open our minds and our hearts to be transformed more into the likeness of Christ. Imagine that I come home from work and my wife is there and she starts to tell me about her day. And with that, as she starts to talk about the kids, I look at her and I just simply say, hey, can you stop right there? Can you just give me a couple summary points? I mean, could we speed this up to like 1.5 speed or maybe you could just put all of this into a text message and send it to me? Now that would be really awkward, right? And how do you think that would work in developing a deep and loving and abiding relationship? It wouldn't at all. And I can't help but to think that many of us, we approach the Bible in a similar way. We basically look at it trying to mind out a few nuggets or a few facts about Jesus when the Bible is basically putting forth an invitation asking you and I to come and commune with Christ, to be in relationship with Him, to know Him. You see, as we commune with Jesus, guess what? We'll come to know the mind of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the Word of God, and we will find ourselves joyfully being transformed. But what is the mind of Jesus? That is a great question. Look what it says in verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Think of that word grasped for a second. What comes to your mind when you think of that? Well, in my house, we have two dogs. And oftentimes, they will take a toy. One of them will get it, and the other one will chase, a, chase the other dog around. And why is that dog running away? 
because it's grasping, grasping onto that toy. It does not want to lose that toy. My kids, when it becomes um, their time to watch the TV, they will oftentimes take the remote that controls the TV with them wherever they go in the house. If they go into the kitchen, they take the remote. If they go into the bathroom even, they take the remote. Why do they do that? They're grasping onto it. They're afraid if they lose that remote, what are they going to lose? Their chance to watch TV. And when my wife Jess makes cookies in the house, chocolate chip cookies, that is my vice. And I see those cookies come out. I'm usually one of the first ones over there grasping on to the best cookie because I'm afraid I might lose it. You and I, we grasp onto things so tightly because we are afraid that we might lose them. But Paul says Jesus didn't view his equality with God, his divinity, as something to be grasped. Why is that? Listen to me clearly. Jesus knew he could not lose it. At no point did Jesus have an identity crisis. He knew he was God. And Paul says here in the wording that he is in the very form of God. Now, when you and I hear that Jesus was in the form of God, we might mistakenly believe that Jesus just had the outward appearance of God. But intrinsically, inside, he wasn't God. Many of us have watched the show The Power Rangers when we were younger. And the question that I have for you is just simply this. Was the, were the Power Rangers intrinsically powerful? No, they weren't. What made them powerful? That watch or whatever they put on, that suit that came on them, that outward appearance is what made them powerful. Maybe for you it wasn't the Power Rangers, but you relate more to somebody like Batman. Now, was Batman intrinsically powerful? No, he was just a regular, average, everyday human who just happened to be very, very rich. And as the Joker said, he had such wonderful toys. Some of us tend to think that is what Paul is referring to here. However, that word form, morphe, doesn't mean this. It doesn't refer to an outward appearance, but rather it speaks to the very nature and essence of a thing. And what does Paul say? Jesus did not appear as God, but rather Jesus has the very essence and nature of God. Everything that it took to be God don't miss this, existed in Jesus. He possessed it in full. And because he was in the very nature of God, Paul says that Jesus did not what? Grasp it or try to exploit it. One could read the text as literally saying, because Jesus was the very nature of God, he did not think it was appropriate to exploit his status as being equal with God. How would you basically react if you had all the power of God at your disposal? Many of us have seen the movie Bruce Almighty and how they work out there, not very well. It's not like Jesus was up in heaven going, do you guys not know who I am? I mean, I'm kind of a big deal. People know me. I'm God. Angels, I want water at 62 degrees, perfect temperature. Dead saints, give me grapes now. No, Paul says that Jesus never used his divinity, his godhood for selfish gain. In another letter in Romans chapter 15, verse 3, the apostle Paul writes this of Jesus. Listen to what he says. For Christ did not, what? Please himself. Don't miss this. At no point did Jesus ever think selfishly. Jesus was, yes, and absolutely God in a human body. And we never once read of Jesus thinking, what can I get, 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 get? Rather, what was Jesus constantly thinking? What can I give, 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 give? That's the mindset we are to have. And listen to how Jesus gave. In verse 7, but he emptied himself by taking the form of the servant and being born in the likeness of men. Now, at first, many of us, we could read this text and assume that what Paul is talking about here is that Jesus gave up his deity, his godhood, his divine nature. However, that is not what Paul says at all. 
Paul says that Jesus emptied himself, but he did not empty himself by subtraction. Rather, Jesus emptied himself through addition. And in this verse, we see that Jesus added three things to himself. The first thing we see is that Jesus added the nature and essence of a servant. In the Greco-Roman culture, slaves were deprived of the most basic rights. And what Paul is saying is that Jesus gave up his sovereign rights to become a slave. You might remember in the Gospel of John in chapter 13, as Jesus was sharing his last earthly meal with his disciples, we read this. Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Before that dinner, the disciples were jockeying for power and position in Jesus' kingdom. And Jesus wasn't having an identity crisis here, but rather Jesus knew something, that he was not only the most powerful man in the room, he was not only the most powerful man in the city or even the town or even in the world, but rather Jesus was the most powerful man that ever existed. And in that moment, having that knowledge in his life, what did Jesus do? He rose up from the table and he didn't correct those guys, but rather he took the position of the most lowly of servants of the day. He got up, wrapped a towel around his waist, took water, and he began to wash the very feet that he made with the very water that he created. Jesus took the very nature and essence of a servant But Paul also tells us that Jesus added being born. Most of us, when we think of Jesus, we try to focus on being more like him. But what Paul wants you and I to do is to slow down and to marvel at the fact that Jesus would even become like us. You see, the Gospel of Luke tells us in Luke chapter 252, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus' birth was supernatural. There's no doubt about it. He was born of a virgin. But don't miss the fact that Jesus spent nine months in a womb being formed and that he went through a natural birthing process. And what Luke tells us is that his growth as a child was that of a godly human boy. Think about it. Jesus had to grow up like you and me. Jesus had to deal with emotions. He had to deal with adolescence. He had to deal with earthly parents. He had to deal with a changing body and all the odors that come with that. He had to deal with friendship issues. And Jesus got hungry, but Jesus also got tired, just like you and me. Jesus emptied himself, yes, but he emptied himself by what? Adding service, adding being born. But we also see third, that Jesus added flesh. And don't miss this, Jesus added flesh forever. Jesus' humanity wasn't a secret. It was plain for all to see. Those who would look to Jesus and see him, they would go, that there is a man. And the author of Hebrews is so helpful in telling us why. Listen to what he says in Hebrews 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Theologically speaking, what this is referring to is the incarnation. And some of you are familiar with the way I usually try to unpack this. You have regular chili and then you have what? Chili con carne. 
And what is chili con carne? It's chili with meat. And I would argue all day that chili with meat glorifies God in a way regular chili cannot. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus literally took on meat. He took on flesh, not only while he was here on earth. It's not like when Jesus went and ascended to the right hand of the Father, he discarded his humanity. But rather, right now, in this moment, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father with what? Skin on. Forever. You see, Jesus emptied himself not by discarding his deity, but by adding humanity to himself forever. And because Jesus is God, Jesus could not de-God himself. My kids know that one thing that I really, really want is the brand new Ford Ranger. And if you have not seen this truck, it is magnificent. A couple months ago, my daughter and I, we were running around the block, and as we passed one of these trucks, actually stopped us on our run so that we could just look at it. Now, let's say I go into the showroom floor at the Ford dealership, and I see right there in the middle of the showroom is a brand new Ford Ranger. It's in mint condition. The paint shines with the luster that magnifies all the power and glory of the truck. With my mouth open, the dealer comes over and he goes, you like that truck? And I say, oh yeah, I like that truck. And then he says, would you like to take it for a test drive? And I'm like, yeah. So he hands me the key and what do I do? I drive that truck out of the showroom floor and I take it out on the streets of Las Vegas. And let's say as I'm driving around, it begins to rain. Now, am I gonna take that truck back to the showroom? Absolutely not. I wanna know how that truck handles in the mud. So with that, I pull off into the desert and I start to you know, go all around doing donuts and all that. Well, let's say I stay out there so long, I don't have time to run it through a car wash. So I just drive it back to the dealership, right into the showroom floor with mud just dripping off of it. With that, the dealer looks at me and he goes, what did you do to my truck? And I respond, don't worry, your truck is still there. It's just covered with a thick layer of dirt. You see, the truck is just as powerful as it was before. The shine and the luster of the paint, it's still there. It's just covered up with some mud. That's all that's going on. You see, in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, the apostle Luke, or the writer Luke says this, But God appointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. One of my professors by the name of Todd Miles wrote a book, and it's fantastic. I would highly recommend it to you, and he did not ask me to say that, but it's a great book. It's called Superheroes Can't Save You. Listen to what he writes in this book. What happened when Jesus took on human nature and human existence? He emptied himself by refusing to exercise the divine attributes that are inconsistent with authentic human existence and his redemptive mission. Instead, he continued to submit to God the Father and relied upon the Spirit. The Son of God did not give up the attributes of deity. Jesus did not need the Holy Spirit because he was not divine. He relied on the Holy Spirit because he chose to live as an authentic human. Why is all of this a big deal? Well, look with me again quickly at Hebrews chapter 2. Listen to what it says. Since therefore children share in flesh and blood, he himself partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Why did Jesus become human? In order to save us. That is what the author of Hebrews is saying. Later he would tell us in Hebrews 10 chapter, chapter 10 verse 4 that the blood of bulls and goats, they're not sufficient to bring us back to God. Why is that? It's because it's not an equivalent. Both animals and people, they are not equivalent. Therefore, Jesus had to become like us. He had to become fully human in order to what? 
to save us. One writer compares it to the Olympics. He says, you and I, we get this, that in the Olympics, you have to represent the country that you have come from. But not only do you have to represent the country in which you were born in, but you also have to be a what? A person. There is no doubt in our minds that a cheetah would beat Hussein Bolt in the 100 meters. And I would argue all day that a dolphin could beat Michael Phelps in the 400 meters. But both the cheetah and the dolphin would be disqualified. Why? It doesn't have the same DNA. And so to represent us and to suffer in our place, guess what? God had to become a man. A man of suffering, a real man. That's why the author of Hebrews says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their what? Humanity. Jesus was born as a member of the human race. He was wearing our clothes. He was running for our team, team human race. And as a man, he suffered the punishment that our sins so rightly deserve. And that's exactly what Paul says Jesus did in verse 8. Listen to what it says. And being found in, the hu in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is fully God. And Jesus is also fully man. And his entire life was marked by humility. And just like we learned last week, what is humility? It's not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. There was nothing, not even a cross, that was beneath Jesus. And when you think of crucifixion, don't just think of crucifixion as something that just kills you. Though that is absolutely true. It's an excruciating death. But crucifixion didn't exist just to kill you, but crucifixion also existed to shame you. It was reserved for the most uh, despicable and the worst of rebels. And oftentimes those who were crucified were crucified naked, and they had a nail thrusted through their wrist and their feet. And the only way that they could breathe is for, by pushing up on those nails and their wrist and their feet to take a breath. You see, the cross shows us the lengths in which Jesus would go to in obedience to the Father. Jesus was not too proud to wash feet. Jesus was not too proud to wear our skin. And Jesus was not too proud to bear our sin on that cross. The author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, that there was joy in the cross of Christ for Jesus. Listen to what it says. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What was the joy for Jesus in the cross? Was it just simply getting off that cross? Was it begrudgingly and reluctantly dying for people? No, the joy for Jesus in that cross was in living in obedience to his Father and in rescuing all those who would trust in him. His mind and his thoughts were fixated on that. And think about that. His mind was fixated on that. And what did it do? It impacted his words. It impacted what he did. And that is why the author of Hebrews tells you and me that we are to also what? Look to Christ. And it's not like we just look to Jesus once, but what does he say? Looking. We are to continuously fixate our eyes on Jesus, our thoughts on Jesus. And what we will see happen is this, that our minds and our thoughts and what we do and what we say will reflect who he is. That through thinking about Christ, we will watch as what we do and what we say reflect who he is. Napoleon uh, is believed to once have, once have written something like this. Alexander, Caesar, and Charlemagne, and I have founded empires. 
But in what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men would die for him. Think about how drastically different these two empires are. One was built on power and conquering. The other one was built on love. And I would argue that the followers of those empires, thinking on those positions, would reflect those positions in their lives. That is why when he says, we, we conquered through power and might, the followers also did what? Power and might. Yet he says that Jesus built his empire upon love. And his followers reflect that love to the world by sharing who Jesus is and willing even to die for Christ if they are called to. So what do you daydream about? What occupies your mind and thoughts? And how is that impacting what you say and what you do? I'll tell you this, there is no joy in calling the nicest person in the office Satan. And I will tell you this, there is no joy in following Satan. You see, joy is found when we fixate our minds and our eyes upon Christ. And then what we will see by His grace and by the power of the Spirit, He will transform us to reflect who He is, both in what we say and in what we do. And in that, there is unshakable joy. Let's pray.